0: Hello, I'm Harry Glorickian, and this is the Harry Glorickian Show, where we explore how technology is changing everything we know about healthcare. If you're a parent, you've probably had this experience many times. Your young child has a fever and maybe a sore throat, but you don't know exactly what's wrong. Is it a bacterial infection, in which case an antibiotic might help? Or is it a viral infection, in which case you just have to wait it out? The symptoms of bacterial and viral infections are often the same, and most of the time, even a doctor can't tell the difference. Viral infections are more common, but sometimes the doctor will prescribe an antibiotic anyway, if only to help the parents feel like they're doing something to help. But what if doctors didn't have to guess anymore? What if there was a fast, easy blood test that a doctor could run in their own office to look for biomarkers that discriminate between bacterial and viral infections. Well, that's the seemingly simple problem that a company called Mimed has been working on for the past 13 years. Recently, Mimed's first testing product got approval from the FDA and now the company is finally beginning to roll out commercially in the U.S. And here to tell us more about how it got built, how artificial intelligence fits into this picture, and how rapid diagnosis could change the practice of medicine is Mimed's co founder and CEO, Iran Eden. Mimed has a growing office in Boston, but I reached him at his office in Haifa, Israel. Iran, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me it's great to have you here. I know that there's a significant time difference. uh, So I appreciate like, but it still looks like it's really bright and shiny out there right now. So what time is it in in Israel right now? Five o'clock in the evening. It's five o'clock. All right. Yeah. Well, you guys have a lot more sun than we do anyway, because we're in the middle of winter. But (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And and the
1: office here is actually full of people as well. So uh, yeah,
0: you don't stop innovation at five
1: o'clock in the evening. (laughs)
0: so let you know i was looking at your background and i mean it's really it's interesting it's diverse you you have a degree in biology computer science systems biology you were first job was in computer vision data analysis but then all of a sudden you wound up starting a company that builds sensors and software for infectious disease like um how, how did you end up down this path? And do you feel like everything that you were doing until you got here was preparing you for it?
1: Well, uh, I think the, a great question. So I, I think you know, on the face of it, it, obviously the background in data science, as uh, you know, in molecular biology, obviously all of that relates to what we're doing as part of our day to day. And it is a good starting point. But in reality, there's a very big gap between what I was trained to do and today my everyday, day-to-day activity. I would say that probably the most important training that I got during my PhD at the the Weizmann Institute has got less to do with differential equations or molecular biology. And it was more about a story that my mentor, uh, Professor Uri Uri Alon told me when I was three years into the PhD. Uh, About three years into the PhD, he asked me, am I already in the cloud? He said, what? And he said, uh, are you in the cloud? He said, well, well, what is the cloud? He said, well, every PhD, every scientist, when you start your PhD, you know, you have, you go you go and read the latest papers in science and in nature. And you see how somebody starts at point A, makes a hypothesis about point B, and then take the straight line from A to B. And then you say, OK, I'm going to do the same thing. And you start point A, the known. You shoot for the unknown. And you start going, and suddenly you hit a roadblock. And then you hit another one and another one. At a certain point, you really lose direction, which he called the cloud. You're in the cloud. And then if you have enough perseverance and luck, you find a point C, which is not exactly where you thought you were going to end. You go there with you know, your last uh, energy. And if you're lucky enough, then you publish another paper, how you started at point A, went from point C, and connected between the two dots with a straight line. And then you have another generation of PhDs that are asking themselves, well, why am I the only one that's struggling? And that lesson about how to be in the cloud, how to deal with uncertainty, to deal with failure um, and still move on, that is probably more important in the training that I got uh, to become an entrepreneur and CEO of a company than any specific scientific knowledge.
0: Yeah, no, I mean... uh... Trial and error, dusting yourself off, getting up and moving forward is—you um, know—you know. My wife calls me crazy when I keep doing it, uh, but I think you have to be a little, a little, <laughs> a little on the edge to to constantly keep repeating and being willing to fail and then stand up and then move on. Maybe it's a—I think I was reading a paper recently that said forgetting quickly is a evolutionary, you know, positive trait. So that you forget what happened that wasn't good, and you keep moving forward, so but let's talk about your company, MiMed. Like you started that in I, I believe it was 2009. And what was your founding vision? I mean, if you can talk about what you and your co-founder, uh, you know did when you came up with this idea, I think you were both studying at the Technion at the time.
1: Yeah, so so he was studying at the, the Technion, uh, MD, PhD. I was studying at the Weizmann Institute in data science and biology, and and frankly, I would love to tell you a story about a vision, but it started with uh, with a game. I don't think we had the presumptions to have really something that would grow to what Mimed actually became today. It was playing. We both have di- had different reasons, first of all, for doing this. Uh, I can say that from my my end. It was probably a pretty big gap between the places, the caliber of where we were able to publish high impact journals. And when I was looking at myself in the mirror and I was asking myself, is this actually going to have an impact on real patients? Hmm, I couldn't really see the connection. There's another reason why I decided to found MIMED or co-found MIMED. That's probably off topic for today. We can take this on a beer sometime when we meet face-to-face. But so it's, first of all, it didn't start with a vision. It started with... uh, a scratch, wanting to apply a, some of the know-how that we had had in converging between molecular immunology and data science, and to try to solve big, ugly problems that don't have a good solution in 21st century medicine and trying to find something pragmatic. Now, rather than having it a eureka moment, I think, you know some entrepreneurs describe a eureka moment where suddenly you have the best, and coolest idea and vision. For us, it was darkness for almost a year rather than a eureka moment, it, is, it was more like an evolutionary process, trial and error. We tried a bunch of solutions to problems that didn't really exist until eventually we came up you know, with what we want to work with. Uh, but again, it was no no eureka. And, 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 and the way that it actually started was, again, uh, fear was coming from, from med school, Talking about this problem of, of AMR, antimicrobial resistance, and the problem of distinguishing between bacterial and viral infections. And giving our different background, we said, hmm, that's interesting. How can we apply immunology and data science to try to solve that? And at that point, we formulated what was to become NIMET's vision. And NIMED is based on a very simple premise or a very simple idea. Our immune systems have evolved. To tell us what's going on in our bodies. And all we do at MEMET is we listen to the immune response with biochemical sensors and machine learning and what have you, and we use that to translate or decode the immune system into insights that can potentially transform the way that we manage patients with acute infections and inflammatory disorders. The first problem we went after, because that's a very lofty goal, was potentially the most prevalent. Clinical indication on the face of this planet a child with sniffles or an elderly patient that coughs. Come to the doc, they have a fever. As a parent, you're many times hysterical. You're asking yourself, is it a bacterial infection or a viral infection? If it's a bacterial infection, antibiotics. If it's a viral infection, chicken soup. And we said, well, what if we can harness the immune system? What if we could measure or listen to the immune system in real time? and use that to try to aid clinicians to tackle this seemingly simple problem. So the vision was listening to the immune response and the first embodiment of the first problem we went after is this huge intractable problem, B versus V, bacteria versus viral infection to treat or not to treat.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny you say simple, and I've worked in this area for a long time and (laughs) No, not simple, not simple, but I've been watching dozens of companies over time, try and tackle this problem. And everybody always comes at it and says, yep, we should be able to do it. And I'm like, okay, that's a big hill, the, you know, to go and try and die on. So um, but you got FDA approval for your device in the US. Um, and I want to talk about that later. But It did take 13 years, like, to, you know, which parts of the process turned out to be harder or slower than you thought it would be?
1: Uh, Before I answer that, I just want a a, a minor correction. I didn't say it's a simple, I said it's a simple problem. In reality, it's an extremely (laughs) difficult problem to go after. I think some of the most, the biggest challenges that we have can be phrased in a very simple manner. But as you alluded to, yeah, it's an intractable problem. Bacterial viral infections are often clinically indistinguishable. And it took us yeah, over a decade to take this from my idea in a napkin in grandmother's kitchen. That's where we found, it was no garage, it was grandmother's kitchen to what is considered a landmark FDA clearance that I think many folks did not believe we we're gonna be able to get this because it required so many innovation, not only on the technological side, but also on the regulatory side. And when you ask, well, why only a decade? I think it's a it's we're very lucky that it took us only a decade. And there <laughs> the challenge there, let's not call it a challenge, let's, let's call it problems. Challenges is something I always envy the people that have challenges. We have problems at Niman, and we work every day to solve those problems, right? So So there's many problems or hurdles you have to go through. So there's, first of all, you have to overcome some pretty big research issues. Where do you find these hypothetical molecules of the immune response that go after bacteria and viruses? So research, then you learn the hard way that research is very different from development and development is very different than product. And product is very, very, very different than manufacturing, and manufacturing is very different than regu- regulation, and regulation is very different than reimbursement and marketing, which is very different than commercial, etc., etc. So it's not good, it's not enough to excel in one thing. You have to really reinvent the wheel on several things. And as a company and as a team, reinvent yourself. And that's probably one of the biggest challenges. You're probably your biggest impediment to progress is yourself and your team because you might be an excellent data scientist, but you have to talk with a clinician. You might be an excellent clinician, but you have to talk the language of the molecular immunologies. You might be very versed in all of these three, but it's still not product. And it's still not the graphic user interface. And how is that connected to manufacturing and, and really creating a culture or a team that can combine these seemingly very diverse elements within a small company that is a very, very daunting and big task. And 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 again, we we frankly we failed on multiple avenues. There, we had to go back. We were in the cloud, and we had to re- reinvent point C again and again and again. So I, you know, we were in a very far position than we are today. That we thought we were going to be at this stage. In.
0: So I'm going to, at some point, you know, after this whole interview is, I'm going to encourage you to write the next IVD book because everything you said is absolutely the way that I've seen it over time is, you know, having to bring all these pieces together is not trivial in our world. Um, But let's step back here for a second for everybody that's listening, right? Talk a little bit about basic immune system biology and the you know, technology behind your diagnostic system. So if someone presents with an inflammatory response, why is it so hard for doctors to distinguish between the bacterial and viral infection?
1: Because bacterial and viral infections are clinically indistinguishable and you don't have to be an MD to to understand this intuitively. We know our kids so well, but still, you know, when they have a fever, a runny nose, you know we know that it's eighty percent, eighty-five percent viral infection. But what if, what if, it, what if it, there, there's a lingering bacterial infection? And it just it turns out that because of the clinical manifestation is very similar, it's really hard to figure it out. Uh, not only children, also adults with a suspected LRTI or fever without source, and even when we apply modern. Um, I would say diagnostics. There's still a big gap that remains. So, for example, when, 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 as a scientific community or a clinical community, when we approach this problem, we have tools at our disposal: uh, rapid strep tests, rapid influenza tests, uh, multiplex PCR. In today's world, I think everybody, under, even my grandmother, is talking to me about the difference between <laughs> rapid influenza <laughs> tests. Suddenly, it becomes a really interesting topic over, you know, over weekend dinners. Culture. So there's technologies out there, and and, and going back to your question, why is it still why is there still a gap? And we've identified several things. The first one is probably most trivial: is time to resolve. Many of the clinical encounters you want to have the solution here and now, whereas the technology that we have often provides solutions in hours and even days, and that's not always good. Yes, That's, that's one hurdle, not the biggest one. The second one is that many times the infection site is inaccessible. Take, for example, otitis media, an ear infection, or sinusitis, or bronchitis, or pneumonia. It's really hard to reach the infection site and therefore identify the pathogen. It's one in four patients in the most prevalent disease on earth, that's really hard. Third, even if you use the best, most broad technology diagnostics to try to identify the the, the bug, say a multiplex PCR, in more than 50%, 5-0% of the cases, you will not be able to put your hands on any microorganism. But you still, as a clinician, have to make a decision. And lastly, there's the issue of colonization. So even if you're lucky, the infection is readily accessible, and you do get some sort of a virus, for example, that you detect, say, for example, an influenza, or, or let's take a rhinovirus. A rhinovirus is very prevalent in children, That's a problem. It's very prevalent in children. Even if you take seemingly healthy children, in a very high percentage of those children, they're going to have a rhinovirus. So mere detection does not apply causality. All this complexity is found into this few minutes that the clinician basically needs to make a decision, and it's a really hard dilemma because it's hard to know to distinguish between the two, and the ramifications could be quite significant.
0: So... I know the answer to the question, but I'm going to ask it so you can explain it. Is so? Who cares? I mean, I know that it's ineffective to treat a viral infection with antibiotics, and that only, you know, that only work against a bacteria. But you know, we've been doing it trial and error. So, what's the downside of doing that?
1: So, this is—it's actually a pretty deep. It's a very deep question because there's several layers. You're right. Sometimes people actually say, there's several layers to to answering this. The first one is, well, if you treat erroneously with antibiotics, antibiotics because of this uncertainty, there's a lot of antibiotics overuse, that one of the consequences of this, it drives antimicrobial resistance, which basically means that the drugs don't work anymore. And if we continue on that path, we will potentially lose modern medicine. Because if you lose the potency of antibiotics, you cannot treat uh, infants uh, uh, or you know, they have an infection or an oncology patient that will succumb to a parasitic infection or even have, have your wisdom tooth pulled out because antibiotics won't be effective. And there's several quite influential studies that came out in the last few years. The last one actually in The Lancet came out two weeks ago, portraying a world without antibiotics, uh, which is you know, we're seeing here right now the, the consequences of, of, of COVID, of SARS-CoV-2. Some might argue it's not a smaller problem. So that's, and it has both clinical and health economic consequences, according to Jim O'Neill, over $100 billion by 2050 in lost GDP. And it's a big number, right? It's a really, really big number. And maybe, maybe it's overly inflated and maybe it's conservative, but it's a big problem. The issue is oh. that nobody cares sometimes. The individual doesn't care because the doctor right now, when he has a patient in front of him, he doesn't think about the masses. He thinks about the patient. So you might ask, well, right. what does the doctor care? Why does the patient care? And it turns out that there's an angle on the personal level as well, not only on the societal level. If you give erroneous antibiotics, you can drive anaphylactic responses. You can drive allergies, which have a toll. But then there's another yes. element that people are less aware of, in addition to overuse, there's also simultaneously underuse. One in five patients that have a bacterial infection are not receiving antibiotics on time. There's much less publication on that, but it is a reality. And that also has consequences, including prolonged disease duration and sometimes even morbidity and mortality. So it's a really delicate equation, right? You don't want to overtreat and you don't want to undertreat. Some countries overtreat, some undertreat. And again, at the end of the day, at the day to at the day, to day it does have ramifications, both from the patient and on the doctor.
0: No, if we could accurately treat people, right, I think there would be a whole host of issues that could get solved and a whole host of issues that wouldn't emerge because of overtreatment or treating the wrong people that, you know, we could spend hours uh, over a beer discussing the microbiome and allergies and all sorts of other consequences of doing this. Let's pause the conversation for a minute to talk about one small but important thing you can do to help keep the podcast going. And that's leave a rating and review for the show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is open Apple Podcast app on your smartphone, search for The Harry Glorickian Show and scroll down to the ratings and review section. Tap the stars to rate the show and then tap the link that says write a review to leave your comments. It'll only take 30 seconds. But you'll be doing a lot to help other listeners discover the show and one more thing if you like the interviews we do here on the show i know you'll like my new book the future you how artificial intelligence can help you get healthier stress less and live longer it's a friendly and accessible tour of all the ways today's information technologies are helping us diagnose disease faster treat them more precisely and create personalized diet and exercise programs to prevent them in the first place. The book is now available in print and ebook formats. Just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and search for The Future You by Harry Glorickian. And now, back to the show. So your system, which is I love is a basic blood test, right? So The MIMAD-BV looks at three immune system proteins in the blood, TRAIL, IP10, and CRP. So how are these proteins related to infection, and how can measuring their levels tell you about the nature of the infection?
1: Okay, so each one of those proteins that you just mentioned plays a critical role in the immune response to different invaders, bacteria and viruses. What's special about this particular trio is that they work really well as a team. And maybe if you take a step backward to identify them, we had to run for about four years, what is arguably the largest prospective proteomic study ever to be conducted of the human response to acute infections. And start with a host of multiple Tens of 1000 proteins bioinformatically, and then down selected this eventually to three. And these three, while none of them is perfect in itself, they cover one another's blind spots. So let's go one level deeper. When we went on this, one of the things that we were surprised to find out that as a clinical community, we've been obsessed with the bacterial side of the equation. Every biomarker that you have in 21st century medicine, 20 and 21st century medicine, has been mostly pre- predominantly upregulated in bacterial infection. Proclosaytonin, bacterial infections, CRP bacterial infections, white blood count, bacterial infections, absolute neutrophil count, which we use as part of routine day-to-day care, bacterial infections. What about the viral side of the equation? We couldn't find <laughs> one that was used or cleared by FDA as part of 21st century medicine. The last, the recent FDA clearance, we actually just cleared the first viral-induced protein ever to be cleared by FDA. And so we went on this fishing expedition And four years into the process, again, this was 2009, 2013, we identified this trio. Trail is a protein that shoots up in your bloodstream when you have a viral infection, whether it's a common influenza A, influenza B, power influenza or corona. And it has this very unique property that it goes down when you have a bacterial infection. Why? Nobody really understands the reason, but it really creates a very dramatic change because of this up and down type of a response. Mm. And the story there, there's a lot of interesting stories around trail, but one of the ways, mechanisms by which it does that, it causes the cells that are infected by viruses to commit apoptosis, cells suicide, and by that protect the brethren cells. So that's one of the mechanisms that the body's using. The second one is called IP10 which is an interferon gamma-induced protein, basically shoots up in your bloodstream if you have a general infection, and more so if you have a viral infection. It recently got a lot of headlines in the context of SARS-CoV-2 and hyperreactivity of the immune response. It's also associated with, with lung injury, but a really interesting biomarker that plays a critical role there in clearance of, of infections. The third one is called reactive protein. It's been around for about 40 years, goes up in bacteria, and the nice thing about them, they work as a team. So as I said, they're they're not perfect. So take, for example, CRP. It's reasonably okay after 48 hours. But because it takes it about 48 hours to reach maximum level. But in the early phases, you have a blind spot. Whereas trail at time of symptoms onset, it's already differentiated. So they cover one another. By the way, we didn't identify this. The computer identified that. This is a lot of insights that we had in hindsight when we were looking at this.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question, which is, you know, the, the heart of this show is always like, you know, artificial intelligence and its whole basket of tools and biology. So how does machine learning come into this process? Is there some corpus of training data that, that shows that certain levels of these three proteins correlate, or can you tell us, you know, how you develop that part of the system?
1: Absolutely. And I think, I think, again, I was teaching uh, machine learning at the Watson Institute over a decade ago before it was a sexy topic. You know, people use today are using the term machine learning and data science so often, so frequent. I think what's important to say that machine learning is part of the component technology, but there's hardcore immunology and molecular biology. So it's not just one technology that we're, you know, it's a, I would say it's a very high entry barrier because of that and, and adds to the complexity. So that's one thing just to put machine learning in context where machine learning plays a, an important role here is two places in the development and in the final product. In the development, there's a process of how do you find the optimal team of biomarkers that would give you the mo- the best performance. And over there, there's a lot of activities around using publicly available data sets and, un- and, and, and proprietary data sets data analysis and statistical analysis and feature selection and finding the right models, et cetera, et cetera, coming up with what is the right model. Some of these are more conventional tests. Some of these are more cutting edge tests in the final product. It basically uses what's called a supervised learning approach, which basically means the following. Imagine every problem. And here I'm going to be a little bit technical here. Imagine you have, um, um, Let's say one feature, say mm-hmm. uh, a viral biomarker, frail, high levels, viruses, low levels, bacteria. You find some sort of an optimum cutoff that separates between the two. It was the most informative biomarker that we found. Is it good? It's reasonably good, but there's no perfect biomarkers out there. We don't have them, nor do we believe they exist, nor do we believe in, in unicorns, even though my daughter is trying to continuously persuade me that there is one. Then you add another biomarker to that. Imagine that you have right now a two-dimensional grid. And now suddenly every patient is mapped to this two-dimensional coordinates, and you have a cloud of bacteria and a cloud of viruses. And you find a line that separates between it. And then a third dimension and a fourth and so forth and so on. And eventually the problem becomes how can I find this hyperplane or hypersurface that separates between the cloud of bacteria and the cloud of viruses. This is right. the essence of the machine learning. And the way you go about this, you train, you give it a lot of patience, a lot of data, and then you train the system. And the more data you have, the smarter it becomes. The same principle mm-hmm. applies for you know, doing diagnosis in oncology, spam detection, computer vision, and what have you. It's the same underlying, often similar underlying principles to try to solve many of these problems. So hopefully it was able to, to simplify and somewhat exaggerate how this is actually working and where the AI plays here.
0: So what's that accuracy rate of the diagnosis from your system? And is there certain things, let's say, it's good at and certain things it's maybe not so good at?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so if you look at the overarching population, if you look at our pivotal FDA study, the AUC, the area under receiver operating curve on the entire population was 0.9 to 0.97 across different cohorts, which is considered very high. Um, so that's the short answer. The more, I would say, deeper level, it's, there's obviously nuances across different populations. One of the things you have to show is yep. what happens in children versus adults, upper respiratory tract infections, lower respiratory tract infections, et cetera, et cetera. So we've shown a relatively consistent and robust response. That's how the system was developed. But there are, for example, Certain viruses that we know that we perform less accurate. For example, adenoviruses. Adenoviruses yeah. are notoriously hard to, to treat well. They're, by the way, they're one of the most prevalent, for example, viruses in children. Why? Because the immune response looks like a bacterial infection for, for many, many reasons. So white blood count is going to be elevated, prococetone is going to be elevated, a CRP is going to be elevated, and we're often gonna overtooth antibiotics. So if you look at our performance in that particular subcohort, our performance drops somewhat from you know a 0.90 something to maybe 0.89. But that's actually one of the viruses that we see the most added value because compared to standard of care, it's many times close to flipping a coin. So even though our performance is eroded in this particular virus. The standard of care in this particular situation is particularly challenged, and it's almost, again, 0.5, 0.6. So that's one example. There's multiple examples. We've been studying the immune response to pathogens, for again, for almost a decade now. This is just one interesting anecdote. And I think just connecting this to the who cares question that you had. So here's an interesting case that we had a few weeks ago. Child, young, three years old, coming to a major medical center, a not really sure if it's a bacterial viral teology, ran a PCR, came positive for adenoviruses. And it looked a little mm-hmm. bit bacterial, but yeah, okay. Adenovirus, that explains everything. About to release home, got a 99 score, 99 probability bacterial infection. So they started to do an additional follow-up and event, eventually turned out to be a peritonsular, uh, 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 sorry, uh, a bacterial axis on the spinal cord of that particular child. <laughs> to be mechanically removed and this is a very dramatic case this is one of those potentially underused cases that could be very dramatic this is very rare it doesn't happen often but again it's hard it's really really tricky to distinguish between viral infections and we added this right now this is how everything maps together to the adenoviruses and and and, and, and why we think this could be helpful
0: so you know like i said earlier in the the show you know you got FDA approval, I and uh, granted five ten K clearance back in September. Which congratulations, that's a huge step. But you know, for everybody listening, you know, what gates does does that open for you? You know, you know, what's the pathway to getting the device out into the market?
1: So, as you said, first of all, first of all, you have to get that the clearance, which I think took us almost five years of working with FDA. FDA, by, by the way. You've worked with them extremely collaboratively and they've been mm-hmm. instrumental in helping us form and shape. What's the methodology to actually prove something like this? We didn't talk about this, but how do you prove that absence or, or presence of bacterial viral infection in the absence of a true gold standard? So let's put that thing aside. We were able to work with FDA and come up with, with a, a methodology to do that. So now what you know, what is required to take it to the next step? There's several things. The first one you need, and we didn't talk about this, you need a way to measure those biomarkers. You need a platform. One of the challenges that we had is that in the early days, none of the big strategic players, the Roches, the Abbots, the Diasaurians of the world, were willing to bet on this because the risk was so high, as you alluded to in the beginning, the graveyard, and nobody got FDA clearance, so they basically, they wouldn't be, they were not willing to bet on us today. They've, some of them become partners and we're working with them. So it's a, you know, there's been great development, but, but at that time it was really hard. The platform is also challenged because some of the proteins are picograms some are nanogram, and some are microgram per ml, which poses again, a challenge from a technological perspective. Again, not going too much into the technology side, but we've been able to come up with a technology or a platform that can actually measure multiple proteins across almost a six to nine full dynamic range. And so you have to have a platform and can do that in about 15 minutes right now, Sarah working on whole blood. The second thing you need, you need obviously uh, manufacturing capability, which is again, a different story. You have to manufacture the cartridges. The third thing you need is building the clinical evidence beyond, I mean, FDA is great, but you have to create what's called a clinical utility real-world evidence, what have you, working with the payers, working with partners, working with clinicians, working with the societies, publishing, building a commercial team, uh, which we right now established a commercial team in the U.S. So there's multiple things, and probably last but not least, this is too big of a challenge to go at it by yourself. You need to have partners, whether it's governments, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and European Commission. and this heavily and have been amazing partners. Whether it's strategic partners, you can't take it by yourself. B versus V is not one market. It's markets. You have patients in the wards, in the EDs, and the urgent cares, physicians' offices, retail clinics. No single player has enough of a presence in one platform that covers it all. So again, we've announced about a year ago, you know, the first partnership with Diasorin, which has today almost mm-hmm. a thousand install base. Across Europe and the U.S. and these large automated UNSA machines, and uh, that's covering s- certain parts of the market that are overlapping or sorry that are complementary where we're going at. So, so that's a little bit of what needs to be done. But uh, again, it's changing the boundaries of, of, of you know what what we've been doing so far, and that's always a it's always a challenge, but also an opportunity.
0: So you guys raised I. Th- I believe it was $93 if I remember the number correctly, in in new funding, which sort of really adds to, you know, the firepower of being able to take that next step. But, you know, can you you envision a, a future where we get a solid diagnosis and an appropriate treatment plan, you know, quickly while you're in the doctor's office?
1: Oh yeah. Okay, I go much. So I thought you were going to ask something much more radical. I think, I think there's several things that are happening. There's a, there's two major discontinuities. There's a technological discontinuity. There's a regulatory discontinuity, and I'll actually add another one, which is a, there's a psychological discontinuity. The technology that we can do today, that we have today, that you know, tip of our fingers, can do, can provide so much valuable information that can help make better decisions. The regulatory framework has changed because of COVID. It's basically shattered a lot of things. And from a psychological perspective, I think there's a push to polarization, right? Both decentralization and centralization at the same time. Um, And so I, I definitely see that happening. I think we can take this, several step further? How can we take it from physician's office, also retail clinics, and even further? And that will take time, obviously, because we're dealing here with some pretty pretty deep questions. But uh, I think the world, across multiple fields, and this is not different than anything else, I think is definitely going in that direction.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to, you know, looking at what you've created, and uh, obviously, first getting everybody on board, but then seeing how it can be deployed at a CVS or something like that, it could, you know, you could have a dramatic impact on how we manage patients, the whole antibiotic dynamic, um, and maybe even relieving stress on the system for so that, you know, it doesn't get overwhelmed by what your system may be able to sort of help get to a, a much faster, much more accurate answer to.
1: I wanted to say relieving stress from st- stressed mothers and fathers, but yeah, I agree She also really. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, as you start going from more central to decentralized, there's obviously additional workflow challenges. How do you make this simpler? There's regulatory uh, bars that you have to meet. How do you go from a mod complex to a clear, a waived uh, 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 test that can actually go to those directions. So that there's, we still have, we have work. There's work, work to be done. But I think we've been able to to potentially break, break a glass ceiling in terms of getting the clearance. And now I think with that, there's going to be additional innovation that will come in, in, both by us and others right, are entering the space.
0: So just slightly moving to one side is like, how has MIMED responded to, say, COVID-19? I think you guys have developed a test that runs on your platform and predicts how severe the infection will be. How, how does that test work? Like, did your previous work, you know, and also did your previous work, like, on the platform prep you for this virus? Or I'm just curious how, you, how it works, you know, and how you got there.
1: Absolutely. So, so it always starts with the clinical question. I mean, we're, many of us are technophils but at the end of the day, it's about solving a real problem. And the problem here is defined as following. You have, say, uh, SARS-CoV-2 positive patient presenting, say, to the ED, And one of the questions that we have in mind is whether that patient is going to deteriorate or not. Do we uh, escalate treatment or not? And, and it's a real question, right? And, and the more, you know, more stressed the system is feeling because, you know, because of the, the peak of a pandemic, the more important that is. So we said, well, how can we harness the technologies, the framework that we created, host response in general, right. the biomarkers we've you know developed, the platform that we have, the biobank and what have you. And so, and how can we take a, a process that maybe took 10 years and now collapse it to something maybe that's 10 months? How do you get a 10x? and and first of all, with amazing partners around the globe, we start running huge clinical studies to basically collect patient samples. We also use again, information from the public domains, our own repository, our own previous data, because from many perspectives, SARS-CoV-2 is very interesting, but guess what? Similar to SARS and to other types of severe viruses, there's differences, but also commonalities. So we use a lot of the bioinformatics, the previous data samples, current data samples, the know-how and the platform that's readily available right now that can measure basically anything to collapse this And about this, this product just got clearance in Europe that basically allows to take a snapshot of the immune response again in real time and give you a risk stratification uh, regarding the probability of a patient to experience a severe outcome defined as ICU level of care and mortality within two weeks. Again, it's only clear right now in Europe, not cleared in, in the US. And we view this also as a stepping stone going beyond just COVID severity to a general severity signature. So, mm-hmm. what if you do both B versus V and severity? And what if you could do it in the same, say, same cartridge or what have you? How could that? So, so I think what's what's really interesting. We built here this core technology. We went after one big problem, B versus V, but now that you have that, you're in like a child in a candy store. There's many more things that you can do, and rather than taking you a decade, you can start collapsing things because there's a lot of there's a lot of resources that you can now leverage or or, or platform that you can now leverage. So that's the story around me with covid severity.
0: Yeah, platforms are wonderful in that way, right? That I like a platform more than I like like a, you know, sharpshooter bullet uh, from an investment perspective, thinking about it that way. But so you recently got Covid. we were supposed to talk like over a week ago and I, I, you know, we had to postpone it. Did you use the test on yourself? I mean, if you did, like, did it, did it work the way you thought it was going to?
1: Yeah. So, so yeah, I got my, I got it from my daughter. We went on a trip and five out of five uh, Eden family members got it infected. So yes, it was, at least from our small experiment, it was very infectious. We got the Omicron. Uh, actually we didn't have symptoms. Apart from the fact that I think it, it just jacked up the energy level of my kids. So before we talk, I them, running around the house and thank God, you know, m- my wife didn't didn't kill any one of them. So there's no casualties from this from this infection. So because we didn't have any symptoms, we didn't go to the ED, it was not relevant. You have to have SARS-CoV-2 symptoms. So in that case, no, no no need. I mean, we were pretty much honky-dory. But what I can tell you is that on the B versus V, again, it's Potentially bacteria versus viral infection is potentially the most prevalent indication in children. And my children, those little incubators of bacteria and viruses are no exception. So I had a chance to use the technology on my kids many, many times, including last time was about a month and a half ago. And my eldest daughter, I was before of a you know, before going to a business trip. And my wife is asking, Is it a versus is it a bacterial viral infection? I said, I don't know. She's still telling me. You know the shoemaker maker is going barefoot, so we ran it. It was a viral infection, no antibiotics. Went back to school. So and I got a lot of brownie points with my wife and my mother-in-law, which is obviously always very, very strategic. That's probably. <laughs>
0: no, that's that a good time. one. Yeah, you have to be in good terms that, with, that, that's with your always mother-in-law. Helpful. Exactly.
1: That's, 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 <laughs> so so we're, we're actually using this uh, quite often in our, in our families as well,
0: um, and it's, and it's very interesting, it's, it's, it's very gratifying. Excellent. So. Now, you guys are, you know, I believe you have an office in Haifa, which I remember as being beautiful and hilly and wonderful food. And then you have Boston. Um, You know, what are the strengths of being in these two locations? You know, what happens in Boston that can't happen in Haifa and vice versa?
1: So... again, we're going after a a global problem and you have to have a global team with global perspective. Whatever you have in San Francisco today, you have tomorrow in Shanghai and the day after that in Tel Aviv. So you have to look at this from a global perspective, number one. Number two, since the U.S. is the primary market, I said we have to build a very significant presence in the U.S. Why specifically Boston? Very talented pool of you know, a, a pool talent that's very wide in the domain. There's a big overlap in terms of hours between Boston and Tel Aviv, so you can grow one unified team, um, and that's basically that's where, where we're basically building our, our U.S. headquarters. Um, and the team is quite complementary. Again, we've we've recruited um, by now roughly 25 to 30 folks, folks with a very strong background, both IBD, Troy, Botel uh, formerly Thermo Fisher was running commercial for microbiology in the in the Americas. Uh, Fred was running Corp Dev for Biomarier. Uh, again, another large uh, multinational. Uh, Jim Catherine was former head of sales for BioFire. Again, I'm not sure from the audience was familiar mm-hmm. with the name, but it, and so forth and so on. And, and Will Harris was running our marketing, global marketing, again, ex-Amazon, and, and then before that 15 years in IBD. So it's really bringing here uh, Blend of we call this affectionately an anti-disciplinary team. We don't really we don't care about disciplines. We care about solving big ugly problems. And so you have to bring the IVD experts with the clinicians, with the folks on the big data science side, or, or and the molecular immunology and the manufacturing. And nobody, no single location has all the know-how, and no single location has the, the recipe. Because frankly, we're doing here something new. There is no right. real tech like this. And so, bringing those this pool of talent, I think has really helped us propel us moving forward. And it is the bridge to be able to, to to launch in the U.S. A U.S. very focused commercially marketing product where a lot of the I would say more of the molecular immunology data science team is 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 is, is more in, in Israel. I'm simplifying and exaggerating. Yeah, yeah. but that's, that's that's some some the
0: So was so the the last funding round. Um, Was that the argument to the investors like we need to hire these types of people to help blow this out? What was what was the rationale for that last round?
1: So so basically three things. Number one, commercialization. U.S., Europe, Israel, that's our initial focus and then the rest of the world. Second is product pipeline. So we talked about bacterial versus viral infection and a bit about COVID severity. But yeah. what would you do if you had a blank canvas and, and these platforms to go after the immune response and measure the immune response? What additional big problems would you go after? So it turns out that there's some pretty interesting stuff and we're working on additional activities. So that's the second thing, product pipeline. And the third thing is a scaling manufacturing. So that as I think people have a new... Appreciation for manufacturing and supply chain uh, during COVID times—it's uh, a really big topic and, and critical for success. So this these are the three major elements that we raise the funds for.
0: Yeah, no, sounds. I've I, I've been I've seen this rodeo a few times. So yes, I, I I understand completely. So well, you know, especially because I I come from the diagnostic world, and I can't wish you enough success because we need more products like this out on the market to help us manage patients and help give physicians better information so that they can make better decisions, right? More informed decisions than just, you know, looking at a patient and trying to figure out what's going on. So uh, I wish you incredible success and I'm, you know, great great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much for for the the kind invitation and enjoyed our
0: discussion. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. You can find a full transcript of this episode as well as the full archive of episodes of The Harry Glorikian Show and Moneyball Medicine at our website. Go to glorickian.com and click on the tab Podcasts. I'd also like to thank our listeners for boosting The Harry Glorikian Show into the top 3% of global podcasts. If you want to be sure to get every new episode of the show automatically, be sure to open Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player and hit follow or subscribe. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And we always love to hear from listeners on Twitter, where you can find me at hglorikian. Thanks for listening, stay healthy, and be sure to tune in two weeks from now for our next interview.